G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. We're back in town after a bit of a, um, well I could say unscheduled break last week. It was scheduled, I just uh, sort of forgot to talk about it and uh, a few people a little taken aback at our uh, absence over the last uh, week or so, so apologies for that, but uh no great mystery about it. Uh, I was just having a bit of a break. Well, it was a working holiday of sorts, which uh, I'll expand upon if anyone cares for the details. It's not that interesting. Um, but we're back on deck now. Plenty of footy to talk about, as I say. Very good morning to my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. How are you going, Finey? I'm well. Good to have you back. I mean, you've come back to lockdown, but obviously got back no problems. So, yeah, very pleased that we're back on air. It was, uh, yes, I was up in Darwin, as a matter of fact. Uh, first time I've ever been to the Northern Territory and right the height of the wet season. And uh, it was wet and it was steamy and uh, it was pretty impressive at times. Interesting place. Uh, and my better half still up there for uh, another week and a half or so working on her unit. Um so, uh, yeah, it, it takes uh, the locals tell me it takes uh, at least six months to acclimatise to that humidity. I, I can handle dry heat, finally, but humidity I'm not a great fan of because it's pretty hard to escape. How do you go with, uh, with the, uh, the sticky, hot tropics? I, I just like hot weather, but certainly prefer dry heat to sweat, sweat as you sort of wake up and... You would go a bit crazy, I reckon, just knowing that tomorrow is going to be 30 or 31 or 29 or 30 or 29 or 30. You know, so I like the, I like the mystery of Melbourne's weather. Well, can, I, th- can, I, th- yeah. I think every single day I was there, I think uh, the forecast top was 29. The figure you actually look for more is the percentage humidity. And uh, I noticed a couple of days after I left, actually, it was 100%. So I thought my my escape was good. Do you know, I, I was actually supposed to do a second week of this sojourn, uh, talk about climatic uh, extremes. I was going down to Hobart to visit my sister. Obviously, that one bit the dust. But, um, yeah, a bit, bit all over the shop the last week. And, uh, yeah, Darwin, Darwin to Hobart. Are you mapping Australia? You don't trust <laughs> The cartographers, you're going to do it yourself. Well, it's, I feel like I've covered all points of the country now. It's only taken me 55 odd years, but uh, I've now officially been in every state and territory in the country. So that's something to tick off the uh, bucket list uh, before I expire. Speaking about uh, ticking off the bucket list, if you haven't been to this establishment, oh, you should before you shuffle off this mortal coil. I'm talking about one 
fast food establishment, finally, that we know very well. But those who are uninitiated are about to be told where they should head. And where is that? 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. You don't have to follow Rowan around the country to the northernmost points and to the southernmost points. You simply have to get to Albert Park. Now, we've got, as we speak at the moment, we don't quite know what the future holds, maybe a five-kilometre limit on your travels, but that still allows many people to taste the wonderful fare at Andrew's Hamburgers. And I've got to tell you, right from early morning to late at night, there's always time for an Andrew's Hamburger because it is the old-fashioned B-O-T, you beauty, with the buns, the beautiful buns that Roman loves, the meat patty, succulent and juicy, the fresh veggies, all of it. You know what? It's the sum of well-crafted, well-picked and well-loved at the grill parts. And the sum total is your best burger in town. That's what you get. Put it all together. Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. I'll tell you what, the uh, other thing that you will soon be doing, and actually seeing you mentioned uh, Victoria, of course, been in lockdown since midnight last Friday. And as we record this, which is early Wednesday morning, we're all uh, in these parts on tenterhooks about what's going to happen now. But uh, it's looking pretty good because... Just calling up the latest news, zero cases acquired locally from yesterday's uh, wad of tests, zero cases acquired interstate, zero cases acquired overseas. So all on uh, on course for the um, lifting of the lockdown at uh, midnight this evening, which means, of course, Finey, that if you're uh, thinking about getting your home renovated, you can snap into action with the best renovators in the business. And who would they be? West Point Properties, Nick's Bar tells your principal, in and around inner southeastern Melbourne, I'm talking about Albert Park, Middle Park, South Melbourne, Port Melbourne, these are burgeoning suburbs, old suburbs, but where land is at an absolute premium and why not use premium land in the best possible way with a canny, Superb rebuild. That's what West Point Properties do. They put value onto land that's valuable. If you've got land that's valuable, and put value upon it with a West Point property build. Nick Spartels, you man. Nick Spartels and the boys, uh, we are very thankful for their support, as we are, of Andrew's Hamburgers. And as I mentioned, lockdown. We're all uh, a bit toey here in Melbourne today, waiting on that news. So, Wishes the best, uh, all you folk around the rest of the country who've been doing it easy compared to us over the last 12 months. All right, plenty of footy to talk about. Let's get straight into it. On Footyology, Newsfeed. Well, the AFLW's in full swing. We'll have a a wrap of round three shortly. Uh, Not that long now till the men's pre-season comp, abbreviated though it is, kicks into action. But still plenty of other footy news around. A couple of complex, slightly political stories around today, finally, but very important, and we will talk about them. One, of course, is the AFL's releasing yesterday of some key financials for the last 12 months and uh, as you'd expect given the difficulties we were working with 
re-COVID, the financial position of the AFL took a pretty substantial hit last year. I'll just give you the key numbers. So um, the AFL lost $22.8 million uh, last year. Um, As a basis of comparison, they'd made about $27 million profit the previous year. That, though, has been uh, offset. The loss has been offset by a $14 million grant from the Victorian government to go on the revamp of Marvel Stadium. So if you want to split hairs, you could say the loss actually only about $8 million. Um, this figure is the disturbing one for me. Revenue fell by $119 million to $675 million. So revenue fell by a good or in the order of 30%, I'd say. My rudimentary grasp on maths tells me. Um, the cost of the hubs, as you'd expect, uh, pretty substantial. About $67 million spent on the hubs and keeping everyone domiciled in the one place so the competition could keep going. They had to uh, dip into the future fund, which certainly proved its... Um, What's that French expression? Raison, raison d'art, is it? Or, uh, raison d'être. Thank you. I'm never any good at French, but... Uh, well, reason, it, reason of being, reason yes. to be. Well, that. The Future Fund approved that. Uh, they dipped into that to the tune of $60 million. Uh, this one's interesting. The executive level of the AFL took a substantial haircut. Uh, their payments went down by a third from a total of $10.5 million to $7.1 million. And this is an interesting one too. The Herald Sun last year, I think in about September, did a pretty major story about how staff levels at the AFL had completely blown out in recent times. Uh, I think there was about close to 800 people employed directly by the AFL Well, 85% of them were stood down during the um, height of the pandemic in Victoria. And um, for a lot of them, sadly, that has stayed a permanent arrangement. The workforce cut on a permanent basis by uh, about 25%, about uh, 200 jobs shed in the AFL organisation. the bottom line, though, I know those those figures sound pretty dramatic, but uh, the AFL reasonably pleased that uh, the pain wasn't quite as bad as they feared at its worst. Um, a cautionary tale, though, uh, highly respected Geelong CEO Brian Cook indicating that uh, if we were to this year have a year in which crowds were anything less than 50% of the usual capacities, the game uh, as a whole, not to mention individual clubs, would be in significant trouble. So uh, that's a lot to take in, Finey, but what do you make of those numbers? I mean, it is sort of eyes glaze over stuff for a lot of football fans, but the general message is, yes, the hit was taken, but not one that will scupper the ship. It Seems as though the AFL have been able to withstand at least one year of COVID. The big question is, as Brian Cook has posed, how much do we have to put up with in uh, 
you know, 2021, 2021, because it's time now really for clubs to get back on sure a financial ground with members and not just people paying their membership, but going to the football, buying the merchandise, becoming consumers again. So, yes, a big hit was withstood, it seems, through various methods, but I take the message that Brian Cook gives loud and clear, and that is we can't afford another year of lockouts and basically um, paying but no income. So hopefully we can get the bulk of this season completed with the bulk of people who want to go accommodated. I've got to say the longer time goes on, the less confident I am about the season being relatively undisrupted. Uh, Obviously the lockdown now sort of set us back a bit, but, um, you know, just the ongoing uncertainty. I mean, the vaccine, for example, you know, how long have we been talking about the vaccine? It's ready. It's here now, but you know, it's going to be months and months and months down the track before, you know, everyone's had a dose of it and we're, we're less worried about contracting COVID, particularly with these virulent new strains of the, um, of the uh, bug which are going around the world. So, yeah, it's real fingers crossed stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm not that it takes much encouragement for me to be a glass half empty person, but I'm now sort of looking at the situation and thinking, well, you know, if we can have any sort of season like last year, that'll be something to be grateful for. But, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling less confident about things being relatively normal now than I was perhaps a month ago. Yeah. Is that, is part of that based, as I feel the same way, on how quickly borders are closed by state premiers, by state governments? Yeah. Very, you know, it, it, it doesn't take much for a border to be closed and that throws fixturing into disarray and we have a situation, therefore, where teams, we could easily have a situation where after, say, eight weeks... Some teams have played six games, some have played eight games, an imbalance in the number of games played. So I agree. I think we're very much at the at the hands, at, at the behest of these quickly closing borders, and that stuffs up the season, doesn't it? I'll just I'll throw up a hypothetical for you. It's just occurred to me. I mean, what about if we start the season and things are relatively normal? And then things get thrown into disarray. Uh, there's a period where we stop. They have to compact the fixture again. Now, does that mean uh, would we go back to shortened quarters midway through a season in order to compact the fixture? Could you, uh, I guess in terms of integrity, um, let alone pr- in practical terms, could you actually do that? Because I'm not one for changing the fundamental playing conditions of a season whilst that season is in progress. But, I mean, that could be a very real possibility. Yeah, I think that's certainly a measure that the AFL has, you know, they hold that as ultimately something that is in their control and a decision that they make. And that is one of the ways, if we get into this desperate situation again of how do we finish the season, as was the case in 2020, I wouldn't be surprised if we got a compacted season with shortened quarters, regardless of how many games had been played at regular quarter size, 
prior to the break. I do keep thinking about this. I know I've mentioned this a lot, but, you know, 20 years from now, when you're looking back through the the record books and, and you know, you look at, say, 2020 and every, all the numbers are so different to the numbers around them, um, you know, I'm not saying you don't take this, that season seriously because we were very big on saying it was a, a fair income season. In some ways, it was a, a bigger feat winning the premiership. But it just really jars with me, the fact that, you know, that you're comparing uh, apples and, or what is it, oranges and lemons or apples and oranges or whatever. I, I like having that consistency of measuring stick. And I guess there's not much we can do about it, but it's just, it's sad, really. You'll just have to do the mental arithmetic yourself if you're capable of it. Or if you're a dullard, just wonder, why was everybody so shithouse in 2020? Yeah. Well, that's probably what the kids will say 50 years from now because history will be completely ignored by then. Um, All right, let's move on to another important story which emerged only in the last 24 hours or so. And uh, credit where it's due as well to Tom Morris from Fox Sports who wrote a very extensive piece on um, plans for the NAB under-18 competition this year and citing a lot of dissatisfaction among people involved with that competition, particularly recruiters, about how some of the changes are going to impact on junior football. What are we talking about? Well, the start to the uh, under-18 comp will be delayed. Um, There's going to be fewer games this season than previous years, I think. Is it uh, is it 17 down to 13? But, you know, it's significantly fewer games. Um, uh, pruning of staff levels. We talked about that at AFL, what's happening right throughout footy. Uh, a lot of the under-18 coaches are having to double up and effectively coach the, uh, the girls' programs as well as the boys' programs. Um, and the recruiters are particularly upset about the fact that uh, when the NAB comp is on hiatus, as will happen more, uh, and these kids go back to local and school competitions, they're not going to have the necessary personnel to go and scout those games. So they think the intelligence on these promising juniors will be significantly reduced from what it was. I must say, I look at just about all those issues and think, well, that again, they are a consequence of COVID and that's really unfortunate, but is it really anyone's fault? You know, is there any anything else they could do other than what they've done? Um, how do you react to that, Fawny? I think Tom Morris allowed himself to become a an outlet for the frustrations of recruiters who have in first part lost some of their comrades at club level and probably also taken a cut in wages themselves. We know that the soft cap has been reduced markedly and I don't see any of those complaints as being valid or of any importance going forward. In fact, I think the model going forward is better for young footballers, better to identify young talent Now, let's go through them. The only one that is of concern is requiring uh, the one coaching panel to look after both the boys and the girls. That seems onerous and 
would have a detrimental effect on both parties. But reducing the season from 17 to 13 and increasing going back to their club and playing games of football is a good thing. Whether we like it or not, the NAB competition is not a genuine football competition. As much as the organisations, you can't call them clubs, say that they play to win, they're not really playing to win. It's about giving the best talent the opportunity to develop and to showcase. And it's not really a genuine football competition from where I sit and from where most people sit. Sending them back to their local club will have these young men pitted against older men and bring them more in line with the sandful and the waffle. And I think it'll be good for local football, both suburban and country, and it'll be good for the uh, young men involved. Now, absolute horse hockey, the clubs will not be able to follow these players back to the country. If there's a talented youngster, he'll be, he'll be followed right back to his country club and watch. Don't you worry. There'll be petrol put in the car. Might take a little bit of the old, uh, old school investigative sort of um, uh, recruiting and a bit of nous won't be as easy as it was before. But believe you me, clubs will make sure the good players are scouted. No question about it. We might even have the old Bush Smokey back in business. I really think that what Tom has put to paper here is venting from an element of club life that have been impacted upon directly by the 30% cut to the soft cap. I know it's hard on them, but their claims and their, their, their issues are certainly, uh, from where I sit, handleable, dealable and basically does not put any club at disadvantage or any young footballer at a disadvantage. One, yeah, look, one thing that I think will be really interesting this season is to measure the progress of the most recent crop of draftees at AFL level and how they go in their first years because, of course, they, those coming from beyond Victoria uh, or South Australia WA, they at least had a reasonable amount of junior footy to sustain them last year, whereas the Victorian kids had zero. Um, so I think that'll be one thing that people are keeping an eye on. And if if it does emerge that the Victorian kids, uh, in terms of development, are significantly behind those interstate kids from the point of view of not having played footy for the last 12 months, um, that'll set the alarm bells ringing about what happens in the next year's draft. My other big hobby horse, and I'll put my hand up, it's a bit of an ideological one, but this has been going on for some time, and Jake Nile memorably wrote a really good piece about this. It was how that under-18 competition has become a bit of a, um, uh, a nursery, if you like, for elite private schools who pinch all the talented kids from government schools and country areas or interstate or wherever, funnel them into their own systems and uh, they end up playing under 18s, getting the better resources and getting recruited from there. And I'm a big believer in equality of opportunity, uh, particularly in things like education. So whilst I, I take on board your point about going back to their uh, sort of local environments or whatever, 
if you're talking about school footy, that is going to leave the kids who go to government schools at a severe disadvantage. And that worries me. One of the big dangers, I think, for our game in terms of junior pathways heading down the track is that we don't end up like a sport like rugby union, which becomes effectively a sport for privileged white kids going to independent schools. You know, one of the great things about Australian rules football has been it's a game open to everyone, all different shapes and sizes, but all different socioeconomic backgrounds. And we've got to do everything we can to make sure that continues to be the case. Now, well put, well put. Though, I, you know, if a kid has a public school education for 10 years and because he's a good footballer gets to finish his education at a private school for a couple of years. Is that a bad thing? Uh, well, not for him. Um, but again, you know, look, I, I'll put my hand up here. I'm, I'm uh, you know, this is where my socialist tendencies <laughs> come out. But I mean, I, I just think, you know, in a, in a perfect world, we would have a government that fen- uh, funded education substantially more than it does so that there was no need for private schools because all government schools were very well resourced and all kids, regardless of their backgrounds, had uh, equal access to those educational opportunities. But I mean, I'm fearful that public schools don't have footy grounds anymore there. You know, the, the, the sort of emergence of vertical schools that don't have playgrounds at all is becoming more and more prevalent. We know that. And I'm just fearful that a talented footballer at a public school doesn't get to play in school footy. Yeah, well, uh, and again, that's a result of resources, isn't it? It's a, it's oh, yeah, a, no, it's... it's, lack, it's of, re- yeah, lack of... Yeah, I agree. Lack of space, lack of qualified staff, et cetera, et cetera. All right, no, it's an interesting one. And, uh, yeah, look, a, a lot of work done on that by Tom Morris, and we, we don't read enough football stories like that these days. So um, regardless of, and I take on board your disagreements with his contention, but it was a good piece well, of not, not with his I contention. Thought. I just feel as though he, um, I mean, the article's well written, don't get me wrong, but it's in no small part the venting of grievances by recruiters who've had their, you know, had their lunch, had their lunch money nicked. Yeah, well, we're going to be hearing more about it as a result of that. So it certainly stirred up a bit of a hornet's nest. All right, uh, those are stories with ramifications for the future. Uh, Let's talk about what's going on now and uh, have a good look at the AFLW competition. We've had three rounds now. Uh, I am going to talk about this a bit later on in my rant, Fonny, but I am absolutely loving AFLW5 so far. I think... uh, Some of the footy played has been sensational. But uh, the upshot of it all, let's have a quick look at the top of the ladder. So after three rounds, there are four undefeated teams in order. They are Brisbane, Fremantle, Collingwood and Melbourne. Uh, In contrast, there are four teams yet to break the ice and they are from the bottom, Geelong, Gold Coast, West Coast, and Richmond, interesting that those four teams are four expansion teams, if you like, uh, teams that are newer to the competition than those that kick things off in 2017. But a really interesting round over last weekend and some significant results. 
probably uh, the game of the round, or the, not the game in the round, but uh, I guess, well, two highly anticipated games. They were Fremantle, who um, cruelly denied uh, a likely premiership last year when the competition was abandoned, but uh, they came up against Adelaide, who have looked very ominous, and they spanked the Crows. Final scores in that game, Fremantle 7-1-43, defeating Adelaide 1-7-13, and uh, sending a resounding message to the rest of the competition there. And uh, the other big game played on Saturday night, I will talk about this later, Fanny, but um, the best game of women's football I have seen between Melbourne and North Melbourne. It was a corker, and it finished up in a nine-point win to the Demons, nine goals, six sixty, defeating North, eight three fifty one. 51 uh, Other results, Western Bulldogs beat Geelong, 3-6-24 to 1-3-9. GWS uh, beat Gold Coast in a very wet and slippery game out at Blacktown. GWS 2-6-18, defeating the Suns 1-2-8. Carlton had a resounding win over your Saints, 6-4-40 to St Kilda 2-4-16. Collingwood, um, comfortable winners over Richmond, 7-6-48, defeating the Tigers 4-7-31. And Brisbane, who uh, have been a strong side throughout the history of this comp, uh, looking the goods again over a pretty hapless West Coast, 10-5, 65, the Lions, defeating West Coast, 2-8-20. Uh, any takeaways for you from the last weekend of AFLW? I tell you what, I have come to see boxing a fair bit of AFLW. If you put together a team of, you know, the best, the all-Australian AFLW team, that would be an outstanding football team. We don't quite have the depth club by club yet. Some clubs more so than others, and we're getting there across the board. Don't worry about that. But boy, oh boy, there's some elite talent in each and every club. I'm talking kicking, running, marking, instinctive good use of the body, just all-round smart footballers. Gee, the best 22 would be a good team, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. And uh, I, I mentioned that Melbourne North game. The second quarter in which Melbourne rattled on six goals, the football they were playing in that quarter, jeez, uh, it was... Uh, seriously, if you'd watched AFLW 1, gone away for a couple of years or turned off and then turned it back on Saturday night, you would, I, I'll tell you, your jaw would hit the ground because the ball movement was the thing that got me and the depth of the kicking too. Like some of these girls really can connect with the footy and, and kick it you know, further than you or I could, Fonny. And um, gee, the, the Demons are impressive in that second term. They've got some great players. The, uh, Karen Paxman, she is an absolute gem for the Demons. Lily Mithin, um, she's been a a young emerging star for a, a few years now. She was terrific. But the Roos as well, uh, they've got some fantastic players. Um, Emma King, of course, they're very tall ruckman forward. Uh, Sophie Abbott-Tangelo, uh, Jasmine Garner. You know, gee, these were two seriously good teams going head-to-head, -head, and the result was terrific to watch. And look, even at the bottom of the ladder, look, West Coast are looking pretty 
off the pace, but I did watch the Collingwood-Richmond game, and Richmond yet to record a win uh, last season or so far this season, but they ended up only 17 points adrift of Collingwood, who are one of the better sides, and um, starting to get their act together. So, you know, the improvement in this comp is coming week by week, not just season upon season. And uh, those who remain sceptical, again, I'd urge you to have a decent look at it because it really is a decent product. Hear, hear. I think we'll hear more about it later on in the show. We will. All right. Uh, We are previewing the seasons ahead for the men's teams. Uh, After our little hiatus last week, we still have six to get through. Today, we are looking at Port Adelaide, Richmond and St Kilda. Let's get into that right now. Well, let's have a look at the power. Uh, terrific season by them last year. Okay, they didn't get to the grand final, but uh, no shame in losing a very close and hard-fought preliminary final to the eventual Premier's Richmond. Let's have a look at their 2020 record. 15 wins and four losses for a final finish of third. Uh, Of course, that was 14-3 and in the regular season. Won their qualifying final over Geelong very impressively. And then, like I said, heartbreak with a narrow defeat in that preliminary final to the Tigers. List changes. Um, Well, there's a couple of significant pickups here. Orazio Fantasia from Essendon goes home to his native South Australia. um, Gives them another very, very handy small goal-kicking forward, albeit some question marks over his durability. He's had a couple now of very injury-interrupted and hampered seasons with the Bombers, but he comes into the mix along with Alia Alia, key defender for Sydney. And uh, Port's defence, yeah, perhaps one of the question marks about it was its height and strength in defence, so he could prove a very handy pickup indeed. Tyson Goldsack, interesting one. He uh, went over to Port to play with the Sandville Magpies, but has now been conscripted into the AFL thing. Very much backup, I think it's fair to say. Also into the mix of them, Lachlan Jones from Woodville West Torrens, Ollie Lord from Sandringham Dragons, and Taj Schofield from Woodville West Torrens, the son of former Eagle and... Uh, Power player Jared Schofield. The outs, a couple of retirements at the top end. Justin Westoff has retired. Brad Ebert has retired. Jack Watts, the uh, ill-fated number one draft pick of 2008, he has retired. Kemp Sutcliffe delisted. Wiley Buzzer delisted. Alas, we have lost the AFL's greatest name. Joe Attlee delisted. Tobin Cox delisted. Riley Grundy and Jake Patmore both delisted. But it would be with pretty high hopes, I reckon, that the power would be looking to 2021. Where do you think they're at, Farney? Yeah, look, it was a great season 2020. Uh, they were the pace setters and they held top spot. More power to them, pardon the pun. They have certainly got a fortress 
in Adelaide Oval. They look ferocious there, don't they? Yes, in the end, Richmond beat them there and they did have a couple of losses there during the season, but they are very hard to beat there. They've got the parochial crowd when crowds are in and they were sort of the first side to benefit from crowds from memory. They've got this group of youngsters, of course, we go back now three seasons where they decided to do just take a back seat, not concentrate on trading, risk their position on the ladder, and they brought in the likes of Zach Butters, who we like so much, uh, Dersma, Rosie. These young players are exciting, but they're now maturing into genuine top-line AFL footballers and more power to West uh, Port Adelaide for having the the gumption to pick them and risk spending a little bit of time either treading water or going backwards because now it's paid dividends almost instantly. You know, uh, one of the players that last year had a fantastic season, Charlie Dixon. I mean, that is sort of my one concern, Rowan. Mm. Their key forward did have a great year and... In the final, it sort of became pretty obvious that their one route to goal was stoppable. And in doing so, Richmond were able to nip them in the, you know, just hold them and and know that their scoring capabilities were well down. That promising young player is Georgiadis. We saw a bit of him in 2020. I think he was very impressive. Beautiful kick, fantastic grab of the ball and he's got this ability to leap and then leap again mid-air. We saw that a few times, didn't we? So he needs to get more of it but he's an exciting prospect. If he can develop, sky's the limit. Look, they're a, they're a serious contender for the Premiership. I've got them first to fourth because they have everything in terms of the mix right, I reckon. Maybe short one tall forward but otherwise... It's the perfect mix of, of forwards that are small and dangerous, midfielders who are strong, inside, outside, backmen who run, backmen who, who you can bet your life on. It's a lovely mix. Now, it's interesting what you say about the forward setup because they statistically they were the second best uh, attack in the competition in terms of points scored. I, I tend to agree with you a bit. Um, you know, like, who do you rely on when Dixon isn't firing? They do have an array of goal kickers. It's sort of a similar story with their defence, and that's no knock on their defence, which I think is the best part of their lineup. And it was the number, again, statistically, the number one defence in the competition. And Darcy Byrne Jones, unbelievable season, all Australian honours for him. Dan Houston, uh, Hamish Hartlett, Tom Cleary. Tom Jonas, Trent McKenzie, you know, a player reborn as an integral part of that back line. They were superb. However, you still have that mm, if iffiness about their height and strength coming up against sides with a couple of really strong, talented key forwards. The saving grace in that regard might well be that there aren't that many sides around now with a couple of very, very good, very, very strong key forwards. So, um, you know, sort of six or one half a dozen the other in that regard. But we mentioned Alir Alir. He, he, I really like Alir as a player, and I think he could be a really, really valuable pickup for them. The other, perhaps, if, and it, it's hardly a negative, but they did get 
almost a career best year last year out of the veteran Travis Boak. Now, can he repeat that at the age of, what is he? I think he might be 32 now. Uh, Ollie Wines bounced back to his very best. Now, those guys have had some durability issues and one of them is getting on. Can they reproduce that level of performance for a second season in a row? So a bit of an if there. But again, as you say, the talented roll call of kids, you know, Rosie, Dersma, Butters, uh, you know, they are very, very well set up, solid in all areas, even the ruck too. I mean, Scott Lysette, not a big name, but very, very capable and a real emerging talent in Peter Laddams, who I think you'll see go from strength to strength as well. So the uh, foundations are all there for the power, I think. Good coach and Ken Hinckley, players love playing for him. It's all set up for the power. They were, you know, so close they could taste it last season. Wouldn't surprise me at all if they were able to go on with it this year. So not surprisingly, I've got them in that one to four bracket as well. All right, let's move on and talk about the perennial Richmond Football Club. Oh, we're from Tigerland, a fighting fury, we're from Tigerland. In any weather you will see us with the grin. Well, what's left to, uh, what plaudits are left to uh, shower upon this fantastic team of the last few years, best side of the last four years, have won three of the last four premierships on offer. You could argue probably should have won four out of four. Uh, Last year, perhaps the most meritorious of those premierships, given the difficulties both in terms of uh, hub life and having to do it away from home, but nonetheless doing it the hard way in the final series as well, having lost their qualifying final and then coming back to beat in succession St Kilda and then Port Adelaide and then Geelong in the big one. Uh, Their 2020 record, the Tigers, 15 wins, five losses and a draw, uh, winning their third flag in four years. Very, very minimal list changes, as you might expect. Uh, The ins, Samson Ryan from the Western Magpies. How's this for a name, Finey? Morris Rioli Jr. joining the Tigers from Oakley Chargers. Mate Kalina from the Hawaii Rainbow Warriors and a basketball background. The outs, Alex Rance retired. Didn't we read that a year ago? Well, he was retained on the list for, I think, salary cap purposes, but he is now officially off that list. Jack Higgins surprised a few people. He's trading out to St Kilda. Derek Egmolesi smith delisted. Oleg Markov is off to the Gold Coast. And Fraser Turner and Luke English delisted. Um, have a crack at them, Finey, just before you do. I see absolutely no reason why they can't deliver football's first premiership hat trick since Hawthorne of 2013 to 15. Your thoughts? They certainly can. They are under siege a bit. The teams directly behind them have had. Clear improvements during the trade period and uh, national draft subsequently. In other words, list improvements to the likes of Geelong, who've added Jeremy Cameron, Isaac Smith, Sean Higgins, the Bulldogs, of course, picking up Adam Trelaw and the number one draft pick. St Kilda picking up Jack Higgins and Brad Crouch. We've discussed Port Adelaide. They'll be 
well and truly better off with the inclusion of a Lear, a Lear. I'm confident of that. Um, so you've got a, a real sort of movement behind Richmond to usurp the power, don't you? There's, there's no doubt that these teams are going to come at Richmond. But here's how I see Richmond. We could tear Richmond apart. We could say last year the emergence of Shy Bolton as a midfielder was an incredible plus. Came about probably through adversity earlier on in the year with unavailability to key midfielders. But by the end of the season, what a brilliant midfielder Shy Bolton has become. Clearances and around goal, superb. Uh, Noah Bolter is looking every bit like the Alex Rance replacement that Damien Hardwick promised he'd be. There's definitely uh, a development in their younger players that impresses. We're now getting to a point where Daniel Rioli is a more consistent unit. We could go through them all and make a cause, make a case for them being a better team. But you know what, really? If 21 players in that side break even with their opponents and they're good enough to break even with any opponents in the competition, because that 21 is pretty good. All they need to do is break even, Rowan. They'll win the flag because the 22nd player, Dustin Martin, is that good that he takes games under, under his own care. He wins them. He's devastating. He's a champion. He may be one of them. He may end up the best player to have ever played the game, and I'm not kidding. He is so good in big games. The rest of the team knows I don't get beaten. I do my job. So the Lamberts of this world become important. The Castanias become important. And Dustin Martin will win you the premiership. And that's why I'm not going to be smart-assing this year. They're my premiership favourites. Yep, uh, mine too. And uh, Dusty, of course, the AFL's first triple Norm Smith medalist, the consummate big occasion player. Um, I just want to make one point. I, th I think something that really impressed me about them last year was we talk about how good their system is, and it is. And it enables, uh, it's so well drilled into them that it enables young players to come into that side and play important roles. And I think settle down quicker than perhaps young players at other sides. And we've seen, you mentioned Shy Bolton. I mean, the fact that Jaden Short, uh, you know, a guy who, who couldn't crack their first premiership side, but um, uh, ends up winning a best and fairest in a premiership year. I mean, he's now one of the elite running defenders of the competition. But it's their capacity. They are so well drilled now that they're not, as one-dimensional as they were. And I thought it was really interesting that during the finals, I mean, we know they base their game around turnovers, particularly in the um, forward 50. But they became, uh, from, from having a history as being a poor clearance and stoppage team, they became a fantastic clearance side during the final series. In effect, changed the fundamental of their game and turned a what had been one of the few weaknesses in their armoury into a real strength. And it gave them yet another string to their bow. So I think that's something that is going to work in their favour as well. The one downside finding, and people are going to hate is mentioning it, and it's one of those things that can't really be measured, but unquestionably the issues surrounding coach Damien Hardwick, uh, the breakdown of his marriage, his relationship with a football club staffer, 
that's had plenty of airtime. What will that impact be? You know, has the playing group sort of fallen out of love with him a bit? We know that the Cochin family, for example, very close to the Hardwick family. Does that splinter relationship between coach and captain? You know, all these things will be the moment they start losing will be the cause of speculation, which exactly becomes, which becomes a factor in itself, doesn't it? I mean, regardless of the rights or wrongs of that situation, the fact that it will be brought up as a factor is a factor in itself. So um, I don't know. I'm not a big believer in off-field stuff impacting terribly on on-field stuff. And I think Richmond's, you know, the succession of behavioural issues last year is really good evidence that it doesn't. However, this one's a bit different because it does go to a coach's relationship directly with his players. So do you can you see it having an impact? No, not 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 a negative impact in a way it can be turned into a positive. Had it happened in the heart of the season and taken the players, especially those with relationships with the Hardwick family by shock during the season, yeah, it could have upset the apple cart to the extent of costing a team a premiership. But this happened really at the end of the 2020 campaign, plenty of time to absorb it, plenty of time to come to your own terms with it. And these are professional footballers. And in the last two years, Richmond have won premierships in face in the face of adversity. 2019, a lot of injuries. It was a hard season. There was a time there where people were saying they're not going to make the top four. They were well out of the eight. They rallied and finished the year brilliantly. Last year, as you say, there were definitely some off-field issues with a couple of players and injury issues as well. It seemed as though the ability to galvanise when it matters is something that Richmond are capable of doing and having something to galvanise against might be right up their alley. Yep, and uh, that's a bit of a historical trademark too, even back in the early 70s, of course, when uh, they were also at a peak. Uh, it was often Richmond against the rest. Um, it's something that club does particularly well. Yeah, I'm certainly not expecting any drop-off at all from them. All right, final club for review this week, one close to your heart, Finey. Let's talk about the Saints. When the Saints go marching in, when the Saints go marching in, oh, how I want to be particular when the Saints go marching in. Well, certainly a very, uh, I would say, successful 2020 by the Saints under Brett Ratton as coach. Um, they were terrific. Uh, certainly went on a recruiting spree, which really paid off. Uh, all those senior players they picked up, really adding something to the blend. And it's a pattern they have followed again in the lead-in to this year. Of course, the Saints making finals for the first time since 2011, winning a final for the first time since 2010. Their 2020 record ended up 11 wins and eight losses and a finish of fifth on the ladder. List changes are very significant. And boy, have they picked up some decent talent again. Coming into the mix, Adelaide midfielder Brad Crouch. Richmond Dynamo, Jack Higgins. The previously retired but now revived 
James Frawley, of course, going to the club of his famous late uncle, Danny Frawley. Sean McKernan, delisted by Essendon, but picked up by the Saints. Interesting one, that. Matthew McLeod Allison, drafted in from the Calder Cannons, and Tom Highmore from South Adelaide. The outs, Nathan Brown has retired. Shane Savage, perhaps surprisingly, some would say, delisted. Nick Hind, uh, after joining the Saints from Essendon, has gone back to the Bombers. Jonathan Marsh, delisted. Ed Phillips, delisted. Matthew Parker, Logan Austin, Ryan Abbott, Dalton Langlands, Jack Mayo and Jack Bell. All delisted, but finally after that big swag of, or was it, five senior experienced players from other clubs in the previous off-season, they've loaded up again. And uh, you look at their depth of senior talent now, and it's pretty damn impressive. Do you think it is enough to take them substantially further on the ladder in 2021. Well, there's one more to add to that list as well. Mason Wood is now a St Kilda player. Good point, yes. Having been picked up post-season with one of the vacant spots and uh, a guy by the name Paul Hunter, who was a ruckman on Adelaide's list, is trading with St Kilda. Possible ruck backup about to be added to St Kilda's list as well. So have they gone to the used well too often? You know what? There's no question why McKernan and Foley are there. They're there as backup because uh, in the event, in the eventuality of Carlisle or Howard going down, down back, St Kilda need a, a big body backman and they also need some forward support as well. They can't expect Paddy Ryder to have the same year, can they? He was, he was brilliant. I guess that's a bit of a question mark for St Kilda. They benefited so much from Ryder's brilliant rucking, allowing Marshall to play forward and ruck occasionally. You can't bank on that again as Ryder, how old, 33-plus now, and, of course, finished the year with a serious hamstring injury. He's training well at the moment, but there are some early injury concerns at St Kilda. Jaron Geary out with a broken leg. Zach Jones has done a hamstring. Ryan Byrne is out for eight to ten weeks. He's going to have to have his hamstring operated on. So, Zach Jones, a bit of a concern there. Um, nevertheless, there's every reason for St Hilda to be bullish about the upcoming season, uh, mainly because of the development of some of the younger players. Hunter Clark, look, uh, St Kilda really now has a back six that they can build a team around, a steady back six. It includes Callum Wilkie, the very good small defender, Ben Patton, Caulfield. Now, at the start of last year, Caulfield and Patton were not in most people's best 22. Haven't they come on? And Hunter Clark's development, he did have a good 2019, is outstanding. I mean, he's a really exciting prospect. Jack Steele, now co-captain, uh, third in the Brownlow medal, best and fairest at St Kilda. He's, a, he's in the elite group of midfielders. Just, just they, chipping in there quickly yeah. to mention Ben Long because I think I really liked his development yep. last year as well. Yeah, that's right. He, he plays a role in the back line and can release Hunter Clark. The improvement can come definitely from Brad Hill. I don't think he's as bad as had as bad a season as some people made out. I love his ball usage, and I think he'll be well served if St Kilda can get back onto Marvel Stadium. So there's improvement to be had there. 
Gresham missed a lot of the season. He's back and ready for a good year. Interesting to see whether Seb Ross, who was named in the leadership group, will in fact get a game. It'll be touch and go. The bottom line is all of this kicking the ball up to Max King, who apparently has put kilos on and looking very menacing, really impressive young key forward. St Kilda have certainly got the players, the talent, and I think the coach and the coaching staff to be a player this year. I can't see them winning the flag, but I can see them being a genuine player, and I've got them finishing third to fifth. Yeah, well, they finished fifth last year, so it's a, it's a fair enough call. Look, I I really hope they go on with it. I, I, I like watching them. I think there was something exciting about them under Brett Ratton last year. A couple of ifs for me. You mentioned, uh, you know, as, good, as promising as that defence is, it's still pretty young, isn't it? And we saw... This sort of stuck with me. Jake Carlisle uh, being absent in that semi-final against Richmond. Well, that really allowed uh, Richmond's Tom Lynch to run a mark. He had a big day in that game, and um, you know, so the I guess the continued development of or emergence of another key defender I think is important for them. My one other if uh, it's just about quality, really. Now Brett Crouch I think is a potentially a terrific pickup for them. But I still would look at their midfield group as opposed to the very, very best midfield groups in the league and wonder, you know, can can it push the absolute creme de la creme of AFL midfield contingents? Um, underlined for me a bit in the numbers last year. I mean, they only ranked, I think, 11th for disposals in the competition last year. So... Uh, they actually had pretty good conversion for the opportunities they generated, but do they need to get their hands on the footy a bit more? Um, I would say probably yes. But nonetheless, um, you know, I think it's been great to see this resurgence and a different sort of resurgence too because there hasn't been one of those build-from-the-ground-up exercises that take years and years and end up not delivering. They've done it pretty quickly and sort of, taken a bit of a calculated punt on established talent. And thus far, it's worked brilliantly. So, you know, if this year's swag of recruits uh, perform as well as last year's did, they're set. Um, either way, they'll certainly be an interesting team to watch next season. All right. That is our review of three more teams. Where, where have you got them finishing? Oh, sorry. Yeah, bottom half of the eight for me. Um, yep. And, you know, look, Saints fans might say, well, hang on, we finished fifth. Well, uh, it's just such a tight competition. I'm really having trouble finding too many dramatic changes to last year's ladder at all, to be honest. But uh, as we know, uh, no doubt some of these predictions will be horribly wrong. We have one week to go with our previews. Uh, next week, we will be taking a look at the Sydney Swans, West Coast and the Western Bulldogs to finish off. So look out for that, fans of those clubs. That is enough for a bumper edition of Newsfeed this week. Time to kick back and talk about some other stuff, Finey. Life Hacks. Building a better world. All right, we'll talk plenty of footy. Uh, time to talk a bit of other stuff in our uh, our musing on life segment. And I'm going to change things up a bit this week, Finey. I'm always 
taking the uh, new red cherry and opening from the southern stand end. I'm giving you the new ball this week. You kick us off. Oh, God, I feel like Ben Hilfen House being given the honours downwind. Hilfie, there's a blast from the past. He's a good red ball bowler, but he always got into the wind, didn't he? He did. Okay, I'm going to take advantage of it with a with something that you inadvertently or, or advertently um, brought to my attention because I got it off your Twitter feed. What was that? Now, why do you... I, I know it upsets you. I know your political leanings are not anywhere near Sky News, but why would you watch a program like The Outsiders? <laughs> Outsiders? Oh, rank, no. out, rank outsiders. Oh, come on. You, you reckon I wasn't subjected to enough of that uh, stuff uh, over the journey a while back? Um, no, I, I, let me clarify here. I don't watch outsiders. I don't watch Sky News. When I do retweet it, it's something that has inevitably popped up in my Twitter feed. I've even muted Sky News, but somehow their video stuff keeps cropping up courtesy of other people hatefully tweeting it. So uh, that's all I see of it is those little clips, but that's more than enough, trust me. Uh, yeah, fill people in on outsiders fighting for those. Uh, well, I think it's hosted by Rowan Dean. Correct. Wasn't Dean and Rowan the, the comic genius behind laughing about 50 years ago on American TV? Uh, Dean Martin and Dick no, Rowan, was it? Dean and Rowan. No, they, they different people altogether. Um, but this guy's a joke in here. Oh, he's a shocker. Can't spell his name either. Uh, there's James Morrow. Oh, yes. He's a... Who in this particular piece... Look, I don't watch the program. He's an American guy who works for the Daily Telegraph, that uh, esteemed newspaper in Sydney. Yep. Yeah, he had nothing to add here. Who's the and other member of that panel? Rita Panahi. Now, I know that every time Rita Panahi's name comes up, um, people immediately jump to conclusions. This is simply based on what I saw sent to me down the line on Twitter, and it was basically... Hang on a sec, Wes, sorry. What conclusions do they jump to? I don't know. I, you know, that, that we've got a set against her or I'm taking up the cudgels for a mate or this is an attack on Rita Panahi. This could have been broadcast by, you know, Rita, you know, Rita the... What was the reader from Eater, the Margarine Eater or whatever? Rita the Eater Eater or yeah, Rita, could, Rita Skeeter from Harry Potter? It could be, it could be, you know, Joe Bloggs, Rita the Eater Eater, Rita Panity. It's got nothing got to do with the person. It's got to do with what the person said. So here's this program, Outsiders, which clearly postures itself as um, editorial and there's no doubt what side of politics it comes from and who it's got in the crosshairs. And basically, it's a, I'll tell you something, there's something confusing about Sky News. Sky News are running an ad at the moment for an upcoming special where about um, anti-vaxxers. And the tenant of the ad, is it tenant? Is that tenant? Tenant. No, no, tenant. no that's right. The tenant of the ad is very much that the anti-vaxxers are insane and Sky News reporters are taking them to task, which is at odds with most of their other positioning re-COVID-19. 
because it's all been fairly sceptical, fairly dubious of politicians that have taken a hard line against COVID-19, and they continually beat this drum of overreaction, overreaction, economy being affected, overreaction. So we had this on this program, The Outsiders, where Rita Panity, Panity comes on full of bluster, talking about this one case in Victoria of a, of a person who's brought the UK strain into Australia, into Victoria, and she's carrying on that where is this new super strain, this, this super spreader, this incredibly virulent strain of COVID-19? Because we've got one case in, here in Victoria and it hasn't spread anywhere. And the host, Rowan Dean, like some yabbering parrot on a pirate's shoulder, is just going, uh, rebranding, rebranding, renaming, renaming, rebranding, <laughs> rebranding. And James Morrow just sits there like a stuffed toy. And they uh, managed between them, Rita Panahi and Rowan Dean, to stroke each other's egos to the point where they are completely convinced that this so-called UK strain is simply a rebranding and renaming of what we've had before. It's no more virulent and nothing to worry about. Well, that was the day they went to air. Have they been to air since with a mea culpa? Because it's spread to 18, 20 people. It's demanded a lockdown in the state of Victoria. We're back to stage four. We're locked in our homes, hoping to be let out this afternoon. But it is highly virulent. It is highly contagious, easily spread, and of grave concern. Such grave, such is the gravity that our borders are closed to all other states and countries at the moment. Look, if a football journalist at the start of the season said that Dustin Martin was a crap footballer and couldn't get a kick in a cow paddock, surely they'd be sacked. Now, these three have come up with absolute incorrect tripe and piffle and I reckon there's only one network in Australia that would keep paying their wages, and that's because this network gets them to say what the network's ethos is. So you can be inaccurate as long as you sprout the bullshit of Sky News. I haven't been energised to comment on them previously. Rowan, you've been doing that. But anybody who respects decent journalism would not ever watch Sky News for a minute, and I certainly won't. Well, yeah, no, I, obviously I echo those sentiments. Uh, the worst thing for me is I don't know that it, it, it necessarily is ideologically driven. It's just commercially driven. Um, they've discovered a whole new market overseas in uh, funneling this sort of factory-produced outrage clickbait uh, to, put, to put on their YouTube channel, which now has over 1 million subscribers, and it's just so uh, contrived and, and so cynical, it, it's, it's sickening. But, uh, yeah, look, I echo those sentiments. So, so what's their oh. ethos? We, we feed stupidity. Yep. We, we, basically are, we basically hothouse idiots to be more stupid. Yep, yep. Oh, and, great. And un actively undermining a public health message. Uh, as they've actively undermined climate change, you know, 
And that's why we, oh, you've started me now, that's why we won't get any social progress in this country because there's always someone for an ulterior motive and a cynical commercial motive undermining what is in the best interests of the community. Uh, anyway, that's a discussion for a, a spare 10 hours. Uh, all right, my first life hack, I'll be a bit quicker with this one. Um, I did mention off the top of the show, I've been up in the top end, Finey. I've been in Darwin, first time I've been there. Uh, in the height of the wet season, it is hot, it is humid, I expected that. Uh, it's an interesting place though, and I had a different sort of perspective on it. I didn't do the touristy things. I was uh, there with my better half, uh, who was still there. And um, we had a little bit of downtime, but uh, basically she is doing up her unit. So there's a fair bit of work to be done in that regard. So it was sort of uh, sort of living as a citizen rather than a touristy blow-in. But uh, very, very interesting place. One thing I'll say is the food is terrific. Uh, obviously, huge Asian influence on the cuisine up there. And we, we ate at some fantastic and pretty cheap um, Asian restaurants up there, which were terrific. Uh, I think the people are very, very friendly and there's a real laid-back air about how people operate, which I think probably has a bit to do with the climate. It's just too draining to get to. In fact, it was good for me, Fidey. It just It's too bloody hot and steamy to get too upset about much. So it just drags all your levels down a bit, which uh, was probably a good thing for me. So that was good. Uh, one interesting thing, they've got these little motorised scooters called uh, Neuron, I think they're called, that you can download an app for and jump on and jump off all over town. So there's people riding these little motorised scooters everywhere on the footpath. That was interesting. And um, scenically, uh, absolutely beautiful. I'll tell you what, best sunsets I've ever seen in my life in Darwin. Saw some absolutely spectacular going downs of the sun whilst I was up there. So I'm glad I did it. Uh, I will get up there again, definitely, and do the touristy stuff next time. But uh, that ticks off every state and territory in the country for me and uh, only took me fifty, nearly 56 years to do so. Who's dogs barking in the background there? Yeah, that's my dog. <laughs> must, be a, must be a fan of Darwin. Yeah. Still, still quite well, dead. I've, uh, I've, got, I've never been there. Yeah, you make yeah. a great case. Oh, look, it's, it is spectacular, and, and I didn't even do the touristy things. And culturally, I found it really interesting. So uh, quite, you know, cosmopolitan and uh, interesting mix of, of cultures. So well worth visiting the NT. There's a good touristy ad for them. All right, your second life hack, if you will. Well, my next life hack is, in fact, a, a really wonderful SMS that I received this week, Rowan, from... Billy Miller. Do you know who ah, Billy Miller is? Yes, because he uh, – did I forward that on to you, as a matter of fact? He sent an email on the Footyology website. Billy Miller, of course, famous for the Ferrets, uh, local band of the late 70s. Yeah, had a hit with Don't Fall in Love. And Billy Miller and the Ferrets still get about. And Billy's a great St Kilda fan, but a really – yeah, it was just great – to hear from Billy, but he and his son Eddie really enjoying the podcast. So big thanks to Billy and Eddie. Say so they love the footy chat, but it's uh, our life hacks and our rants that get the joint jumping, he says. And 
particularly when Donald Trump's involved, because <laughs> I think he comes from our, our our sort of corner of the boxing ring, if you want for a better term, and likes the way that uh, we'd be tackling some of the issues surrounding Donald Trump and the US elections just held. Don't have to agree with us to enjoy the program, of course, but Billy and his son, Eddie, seem to really enjoy it. So great to hear from Billy, and I'm going to catch up with him shortly at Andrews. All right. Um, that was brief by your standards. Okay, well, I'll be brief as well. Um, I've been watching with my son, David, a uh, uh, reasonable amount of EPL stuff lately through Optus. Um, and, of course, plenty of uh, debate about the merits of of uh, having to pay for that coverage. But it is a pretty good coverage, I've got to say. But um, that's sort of by the by. One thing that has really struck me, and actually I'm wondering if this has been the last few days a big factor in the Australian Open, which I'll concede here I haven't watched a second of this year. I wonder uh, if numbers are down at all because of the lack of crowds over the last few days. Um, but the lack of crowds is such a huge impediment on sport for me. And it's such a shame for a competition like the EPL because um, the last few seasons have been terrific in terms of standard and excitement and history being made. And probably the best example of this, of course, is Liverpool winning that title last season, their first for, what, more than 30 years. And no one there to celebrate it. And I couldn't help thinking as I was watching another game, uh, when was it? Yesterday morning, Chelsea were playing Newcastle. Uh, you know, Liverpool winning that title in front of a packed cop at Anfield, that just would have been such a memorable occasion. And I'm not saying them winning wasn't memorable and there was plenty of celebrating done, but uh, it really took something away from it. And all the EPL games I've been watching lately have been fantastic standard. Plenty of goals kicked. There's been some incredible score lines this season. Sides kicking seven and uh, what was it? Was it Man U? Nine. Yeah, nine. Nine nil. Nine nil against um, poor old Southampton the other day or the other week. Uh, so amazing soccer, but it's just played in this vacuum and, you know, guys will score amazing goals and, no no uh, reaction. In fact, an another amazing game last Saturday night, I think, uh, uh, Liverpool and Leicester. And Liverpool went up 1-0 uh, in about the 70th minute. And uh, Leicester promptly scored, I think, three goals in six minutes. An absolute howler from the goalkeeper. But spectacular sport being played to a backdrop of absolute silence. And it just really, really takes something away from it. That's no rocket science, obviously, but it's really sort of hit home to me watching the English soccer over the last few weeks. And when this uh, pandemic is over and uh, hopefully coronavirus under control with the vaccine and whatever, and the crowds come back, what a beautiful time that's going to be because it's something that uh, has really been terribly missed, I think, even by those of us who've been lucky enough to continue watching live sports. So that's my second one, Finey. What's your final life hack? Well, just on that, I've got Optus and I've loved it because it just so happens that my team, West Ham, are enjoying their best season since I've been watching them. I mean, it's been absolutely magnificent. 
I think it's all about to come to a thudding halt. But, yeah, I like no crowds. Seems to be West Ham's part of our magic formula. Anyhow, my final life hack is facial hair. You see, I sort of grew a beard of sorts. And I've realised this. The people are smart asses a bit because anybody that saw me with my quasi-beard felt prone to comment on it. And most of the comments were fairly negative. Uh, plenty of red in there. I see some grey. Oh, you got red and grey. Oh, that's not coming along very well. So most comments were negative. I shaved it off last week. Almost to a man and woman. Everybody who's seen me since, oh, you shouldn't have shaved it off. You look better with the beard. <laughs> In other words, they don't like my head with or without a beard. And growing some form of beard has given them the opportunity to voice their disapproval. Well, it's funny you mention it, actually. I wasn't going to say this, but uh, what the hell? There is a footyology thread on the uh, well-frequented football forum, Big Footy, Fighty, which we post the show on every week, and big hello to everyone who uh, follows that. Uh, but there was a, an observation made by someone who said they actually spotted you around town halfway through last week. I think the comment was, I can't remember where it was, but they said you'd look like you'd been putting in some serious hard time in like a, a labour camp somewhere, followed by going directly to uh, several hours straight of shooting porn. <laughs> well, that's that's. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> it was an interesting observation. I don't know how you sort of, what are the telltale signs of someone who's been shooting a lot of porn? Uh, I wouldn't have thought it was facial, um, <laughs> linked to facial appearance, but there you go. Um all right, uh, interesting. Actually, I reckon when you had that beard, you were reminding me of um, that old Australian comic, uh, Mo. Mo McCacky. Yeah, you yeah. looked a, a bit like Mo, I reckon. Um, anyway. Uh, all right, my final life hack this week. Uh, I'll make it quick, but I've talked uh, a bit before about how easy it is to slip down the YouTube rabbit hole and uh, find yourself hours later at uh, the ungodly time of 3am wondering what you're still doing up and why are you watching what you're watching. Well, I've done that several times over the last few days uh, with a succession of things. Uh, firstly, um, probably a good indicator for me that I need the men's footy to start pronto was the fact that I actually went on YouTube. I can't, it was something completely different but I called up YouTube and there on the screen was suggested viewing and one of which was an old South Australian grand final. As you know, Fonny, I've watched a lot of those old South Australian and West Australian games in the past. But for some reason, I decided to start working my way chronologically through a succession of South Australian grand finals, starting with Sturt's run of five premierships in a row between 1966 and 1970, all of which is on YouTube. So I watched half-hour highlights packages of each of those games. Boy, they were a great side, Sturt in the late 60s. But I then did it sequentially, and I finally gave it away at about 3.30am, having got to, by that stage, I think about 1980. So I was watching Port Adelaide win a variety of grand finals, 
there was um, Norwood's famous comeback win against Sturt in 78. Great stuff. Yeah, I, I did have an unusual interest in interstate footy um, during my childhood, and uh, I, I revisited it again. So that consumed one whole night. And then last night, I had a double discovery. Someone, uh, in fact, I'll tell you who it was, a guy called Mr. Majestic off Twitter, put me on to a I tweeted something about Yacht Rock. It was the important anniversary in Yacht Rock the other day. It was the 40th anniversary of Christopher Cross's Ride Like the Wind, that um, uh, great in the pantheon of Yacht Rock. Um, but he put well, me What is a, Yacht Rock? Yacht Rock is like soft. Soft rock, West Coast, LA sounding. You know, you're talking about the Doobie Brothers, Christopher Cross, Toto. Um, you, 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 what a fool believes, you know, uh, songs like that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yep. Uh, soft, melodic. And I don't know how it came to be called Yacht Rock, but it's very apt. Anyway, there's this fantastic little series. Uh, it's a piss take shot by these uh, guys in the U.S., which chronicles the history of Yacht Rock. Um, and uh, just have a look. If you go to YouTube and type in Yacht Rock, you'll see the series. I'm up to about episode five now, but it, it's fantastic. They keep having these duels with Hall and Oates, who are the bad boys from Philadelphia. Um, and uh, very, very funny. So well worth a watch. And then you'll love this one, Finey. I did ask you before, are you a fan of Black Adder? Uh, I'm a massive fan of the Blackadder franchise. Uh, tremendously successful it was. Um, but I was unaware of this documentary that was made about 10 years ago now, but a fantastic doco on the whole show. Goes through all four seasons of it, interviews all the leading players, Rowan Atkinson, Hugh Laurie, Stephen Fry, uh, Tim McInerney, who, who played uh, Percy and then, uh, Captain Darling in the World War One series, uh, Richard Curtis, Ben Elton, the co-writers. Um, if you are a Blackadder fan, you absolutely have to watch this doco, and I'll make it easy for you. Its title is Blackadder, The Whole Rotten Saga. Um, everyone always talks about the final scene of Blackadder in uh, Season 4 of the World War One series and how poignant and incredibly moving it is for a comedy, and revisiting that and them talking about how they did it um, is fantastic, as is the discussion between Richard Curtis and Ben Elton about how they wrote. They were never in the same place when they wrote the scripts. What would happen is one would uh, write his version, send it to the other one. The other one would critique it, make changes and send it back. And there was an agreement never to dispute any of the editing or the cuts that were made. Um, people would assume that Richard Curtis wrote the straighter, more historical stuff and Ben Elton did the more madcap stuff. And they were saying that it was actually in reverse because they ended up trying to impress the other one. So Curtis would start writing all this sort of crazy off-the-wall stuff and Elton would start writing the straighter stuff. And anyway, it was a perfect marriage. Absolutely brilliant comedy, Blackadder. And this doco is top shelf. So if you're a Blackadder fan, you haven't seen it, you're in for a 90-minute treat. That is my final life hack, Finey. That is life hacks for this week. Time now to step back in time and revisit a year in the past to talk about our favourite music, movies, TV and football memories. Video. 
vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. All right, we're nearly at the end of this segment, sadly. We might see if we can come up with some way to vary it, but uh, only a couple of years left. And the penultimate of those is not all that long ago. It is 2006. I'm going to kick us off by talking about music in 2006. And one of my very favourite bands and albums, Finey, and um, it's a, a band and record I came to almost by accident. I was at the age one day and uh, someone in the arts department said, we've got a huge stash of unwanted CDs here. Come and help yourself. So everyone did. And I was fossicking around just going on covers thinking, oh, this might be interesting. I came upon a band called the Cancer Bats. And I thought, yeah, that's uh, that's probably not going to be some crooning or rap. That's probably going to be up my alley, musically speaking. And boy, was it. This is the debut album by this Canadian band hailing from Toronto. The album is called Birthing the Giant, and it is an absolute cracker. I still play this all the time, 15-odd years later. Uh, I've read a couple of reviews of this record, and two phrases from the reviews sum it up beautifully. One says talks about the swagger of Southern rock, but all the slummy goodness of New York City punk is a very apt description indeed. And the other one says, a pick-squealing romp of metal riffery interspersed with some slamming punk chord progressions. Perfect descriptions because this is that distinctive Southern rock sound, very twangy, high-pitched guitars, but it's got a real punk sensibility, this in both the structure of the songs and the vocals of frontman Liam Cormier, who is backed by a brilliant guitarist in Scott Middleton, bass player Jay Schwarzer and drummer Mike Peters. I love this band. They're still going strong. They've done about uh, seven or eight albums now. They're pretty prolific. But this is still my favourite of theirs. Their debut highlights are the tracks Golden Tanks, French Immersion, Grenades, Death Bros, and my two favourites, the final two tracks on the album, Ghost Bust That and Pneumonia Hawk. And uh, if you want to check out this band, get on YouTube and look up the clip for Pneumonia Hawk. It is a ripper. They know how to have a bit of fun, those guys. And this is a, a clip that uh, takes all the best of Canadian cliches, e.g. they're dressed as lumberjacks with flannelette shirts. They're chugging down on... Um, vats of uh, maple syrup, eating pancakes, you name it. There isn't a Canadian cliche that's not in there. Power-packed riffery in that song. I love this album, Birthing the Giant by Canada's Cancer Bats. All right, Fonny, what do you got? I mean, that sounds like music that I might like. Do they sound at all like Primus? Primus? Oh, they're not as uh, wacky as Primus, but... uh, yeah, there are comparisons to be made, but uh, if you like crunchy guitars, this band is perfect for you. So give it a listen. I'm going to be quick because it's a song, not an album, and it's a again a bit of a it, it's a, a electro house, and it was a dance favourite, nightclub favourite. Really has become a bit anthemic, and it's by well. 
the French duo called Justice versus Simeon, and it's a rework of a track by Simeon called Never Be Alone, and it ended up being called We Are Your Friends. Now, I don't know whether you've heard. Have you heard it? No, I've never heard any of these dance tracks you mentioned. It's We Are Your Friends, You'll Never Be Alone Again. Come on, come on. Um, I think anybody that's ever been out for a night that ends up at eight in the morning, somewhere like 161 or Revolver, would have heard this song at some point of the night. But, um, yeah, I, I would say of a very rich period for dance and electro house music, this song's a bit of a standout. We Are Your Friends. Yeah, I've got to say, you have very Catholic taste in music, Fonny, and every time you mention one of these dance tracks, I always immediately conjure an image of you shirt off, sculling big bottles of water on the dance floor at Revolver at about 3am on a Sunday morning. Would I be right? Well, first of all, 3am is ridiculously early because you wouldn't want to be there before 8am. Um <laughs> Secondly, if you take your shirt off, you get kicked out. So there's oh. no shirts off at Revolver. Oh. Um, but, yeah, I would have drunk my, <laughs> drunk my share of water there back in the day. It's been, oh, a few years, it's been a few years since I've been there now. It's, I, I, I look back at it fondly. Oh, well, obviously it was no uh, – I'm trying to desperately to remember the name of the – nightclub in Galway where uh, I infamously ripped off my shirt on the dance floor circa 2000. It wasn't quite as disgusting a sight as it would be today. Um, yeah. uh, all right, let's talk movies. Uh, now, this is a favourite of mine. I'd forgotten how much I love this film until I watched a few clips to jog the memory. Very, very successful film too. I'm talking about Little Miss Sunshine was the directorial debut of, uh, I think, husband and wife team, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Farris. And I love this movie. Uh, good cast, Greg Kinnear, Tony Collette, Australia's own. Uh, Abigail Breslin plays the young girl, Olive uh, Hoover. Um, and the other two big names in the cast, Alan Arkin. Uh, and Steve Carell, who, uh, really interesting role for him. He wasn't very well known at the time. The office, I think, had only just started, so uh, there was some uh, doubt about whether he was a big enough name to cut the mustard, but uh, very, very good actor that he is. It's about a um, family living in, I think, Arizona or New Mexico. The young girl, Olive, is an aspiring beauty pageant contestant and uh, she receives an invite to a quest in California called Little Miss Sunshine. Um, it's a pretty unusual sort of family. Uh, Greg Kinnear, the husband, is a motivational speaker who can't sort of seem to land the big gig. Um, uh, Abigail's, uh, sorry, Olive's brother um, is a guy called Dwayne, who is from um, the wife Cheryl's first marriage, and he uh, is in a vow of silence. Uh, he's a, a frequent reader of Nietzsche, um, pretty unusual teenager. Steve Carell plays Cheryl's brother, who is gay and who has just attempted suicide after the breakup of a relationship. And um, the other interesting character is Alan Arkin, who plays the grandfather 
who has recently been kicked out of a retirement home for snorting heroin. Um, so this family takes off in a battered old combi van to drive the 800 miles to so Olive can enter the Little Miss Sunshine pageant. And uh, hilarity ensues there. I managed to slip that word in every week. But it, it's a great uh, character movie, you know, very character-driven, interesting characters, great acting performances. But it really, uh, I don't know, it sort of affirms your belief in human nature, I think. Uh, really nice people with good values and they sort of triumph over a series of obstacles along the way. Very funny, very um, bit slapstick and good uh, dialogue as well. Uh, did really well, this movie. It's made on a, on a shoestring, but um, did particularly well, I think, at the Sundance Festival and at uh, Cannes and ended up being a bit of a box office smash, grossed over $100 million. And uh, one of my favourite movies, certainly, of the 21st century. Finally, have you seen it, Little Miss Sunshine? Yep. Do you like it? Yeah, not bad. Not okay. bad. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it is good. It's a good watch. All right, you're up. Well, this comes from a totally different world of movie making. Uh, love it. Some people can't watch it. Too cringeworthy. Don't like it at all. But many people absolutely adore it. And it's probably the last movie that's made me laugh out loud. And I mean out loud. It is Borat, Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit, Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. Of is course, that Borat long, is, is that the longest movie title ever? Well, it's really just known as Borat. Uh, Borat is one of the alter egos of Sasha Baron Cohen. And this his most famous. This movie is the intertwining of scripted material. Um, scripted ideas or sketches that whilst being scripted were allowed to sort of take their place in, you know, amongst people who were unprepared for it. And then, of course, the complete sort of Sasha Cohen specialty, which is catching people behaving generally poorly or race in, in a racist manner, whilst dealing with Borat. So it's a combination of the scripted, the unscripted, the sort of uh, candid camera. We know, I think most people know his style. Look, I, I don't need to explain the movie. I just think it's brilliant. It, it is, it's got so many memorable scenes. Have you seen it, Rowan? I haven't. I haven't. Uh, and I was going to ask you too, I've heard a lot of people say the sequel which came out what last year is actually better than the first one. Well, I haven't seen the sequel. So I've got to see it. That's quite interesting. Um, look, he's continued to uh, befuddle Americans with his series on America. I think it's called This Is America or something like that, which absolutely tears the American right to shreds. But basically, Borat is a... Kazakhstani um, journalist touring America with his producer, um, Azamat. Uh, there's some very funny scenes between the two of them. But the stuff that they catch people saying and doing that later they try to get sued for, but 
people that sign releases. I'm not going to spoil the movie if you haven't seen it. Rowan, you've got to see it. I think your your sense of humour is mature enough and your political understanding of where it comes from and why some of this is uncomfortable but hilarious will make you a real fan. But It's just a great movie, Borat, from my standpoint. Groundbreaking, different, and as I say, at times, extraordinarily funny, like laugh out loud funny. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, one of those ones on the list, finally. I don't know why I didn't get around to seeing it first time, but uh, I promise I will. Um, all right, TV, and I've gone local and uh, very proud, uh, proudly so in this case, because I thought this was a bloody funny show. A lot of people our age, finally, always uh, look back very fondly on The Late Show, uh, which the ABC had on in 1992-93, short-lived, but a comedy classic. I think this show is the closest we've come to recapturing that Late Show style and uh, quality of humour. I'm talking about The Chasers War on Everything, which debuted early in 2006. Um, and again... Pretty short-lived. They had a couple of subsequent series under different names. The guys from The Chaser are still around in various guises doing different shows. Uh, Chaz uh, Lichardello does a thing about US politics. Craig Rucastle has done a couple of series, uh, one which did very well about uh, pollution and recycling and waste. Um, but it is in this troop form that I think they're at their funniest and most vital who else are we talking about? Andrew Hansen, very funny man. Uh, Julian Morrow, one of the brains behind the whole operation. Chris Taylor, former journalist. And Charles Firth, who was only in the early series but played a sort of contrarian political commentator in the style of Andrew Bolt and did it very well. Um, I love The Chasers War and everything. I think the first series was late on a Friday night, so it sort of suited the time slot pretty well they uh, became as well known for the controversies that uh, blew up around them as the actual humor and um, they got in trouble over a sketch about make a realistic wish foundation um, they got in trouble again about a uh, an ode to uh, I can't remember the name of it but it was about how even assholes became good people after they died in terms of tributes um, they got in trouble for breaching security in an APEC conference, I think, in 2007. Um, but they did some uh, they did some great stuff. I remember I particularly used to love Andrew Hansen's character, Crazy Warehouse Guy, you know, and those sort of the voiceover like the ads, and he'd just walk into a, a fast food outlet and go, I'd like half a dozen quarter pounders and uh, these bargains are insane. And uh, people had tried to have him carted away. It was a great show. Very, very funny. Australian comedy, I think, has been very up and down uh, in the modern era. But this was a high point for me. Um, the best of packages are available on YouTube if you missed it first time around. Well worth having a look at. The Chasers War on Everything, your TV. Yeah, never saw Chasers War on Everything. I guess I was doing nighttime radio through most of their time on air. And, yeah, I might go and check out their best of. Pretty famous. My local, mine is a local as well. And I think absolutely 
far and away for consistency, for sort of the, the overall product, Australia's greatest cooking program. It's Food Safari, started in 2006 by Maeve O'Meara. Maeve O'Meara had previously been part of the team that brought Food Lover's Guide to Australia. And this has a bit of that style. But in 2006, Maeve O'Meara went out on her own and Food Safari, each episode for the first three or four years, takes a nationality of food and how it's uh, how, how it thrives and survives in Australia. At home level, at restaurant level, it gives you an insight into the cooking of dishes of these nationalities. Many of, many of these nationalities rarely seen on TV, like Persian and Syrian, uh, Laos. Really, at three seasons, something like 40 different nationalities covered. And then the series has morphed into Food Safari Earth, dealing with vegetables and fruit, Food Safari Water, dealing with seafood, Food Safari Fire, a whole series on different techniques, cooking with fire. It's internationally renowned and really a brilliantly produced, by SBS, a brilliantly produced food program, started in 2006, Food Safari. You love your cooking shows, don't you? Yeah, man, that's the best of best Australia's ever ever produced on a consistent basis. All right, well, I'd, I'd certainly take your word on it, being the authority on that subject you are. All right, let's finish off with a footy memory. Uh, my one is pretty obvious, and it is the 2006 AFL Grand Final between West Coast and Sydney. Not just a classic in its own right, but the culmination of an amazing rivalry between these two clubs, uh, which really spanned only um, the high point a couple of seasons, 2005, 2006. But every single meeting these two had was inevitably incredibly close. To wit, the 2006 grand final won by the Eagles by one point reversing the previous grand final won by Sydney by four points. That made it uh, the fifth clash between the two sides in those two seasons. Those five meetings, incredibly decided by an aggregate of just 12 points. And that got even better because they met again in the first round of 2007 when the Eagles again won by a point. That made it six meetings for an aggregate 13 points. Incredible. I doubt we'll ever see a run of games between two sides like that. Again, but the 2006 grand final for mine, Finey, is the most underrated great grand final in AFL history, certainly post-2000. Um, this was a great game. Everyone talks about 2005, mainly on the strength of Leo Barry's mark. But as a game, 2006 absolutely craps all over it. It was high standard. It was uh, reasonably free scoring. West Coast opened up a pretty commanding lead. They were 25 points up at halftime before the Swans characteristically hit back with a vengeance. And the end of this game, if you don't believe me, watch the last quarter of this game again on YouTube. Now, this is the high point for me. The last 10 minutes of that game uh, saw five goals kicked and three times the Swans edging within one point before the Eagles replied. Incredible finish, of course, the ball in Sydney's forward line 
when the siren went, uh, giving the Eagles the chockies. But a great game of footy, tough. Uh, like I said, far more free-flowing than the version the year before. Some great individual performances. Andrew Embley winning the Norm Smith medal in that game. In fact, I voted on the Norm Smith medal in that game, and it was a bloody tough call, let me tell you. Um, a terrific game of footy. Even if you don't watch the whole thing, just stick on the last 15 minutes or so of that game. It is an absolute epic, and what an epic rivalry that was between West Coast and Sydney. Yeah, well summed up. My 2006 football highlight, Rowan. Yes. Look, I guess being a morning FM radio host, having a bit of a, a checkered end to your career, sort of publicised battles with uh, personal issues, mental health, gambling, uh, public urination, incidents overseas, the odd footy Mad Monday dildo incident does detract from the the reality that Brendan Favola, when right, was a bloody good full forward with a magnificent kick. And in 2006, he won the first of his two Coleman medals, 84 goals for the season. Now, I mean, I, I, for me, his great quality was his... Went on song. What a beautiful kick at goal Brendan Favola was. It meant that he could roam far and wide to get a kick and still be within range of goal. And I think a lot of side issues have clouded the fact that he was not a great full forward, but a very good full forward of our time. A little bit like Warwick Kappa. We forget how good Kappa was. And at times we do forget that Brendan Favola was the best full forward in the game. Yeah, good call. I'd, I'd actually have him significantly ahead of Warwick Kappa. He, he was a really, really good footballer, Fev. I mean, Kappa, you know, not a great kick and a bit of a one-trick pony in terms of his armoury. Fev was a terrific footballer, really natural footballer. And, um, yeah, he's done well post-career to pick himself out of the hole that he found himself in. That's a good call for him. I like that one. Uh, a player. Can I also add? Yeah, Brendan Favola is a really, really genuinely nice guy. Yeah, no, I agree. He's I a sweetheart. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, and uh, frequently uh, on Twitter, and uh, I think both of us have caught up with him at various stages over the journey. So, uh, big hello to you, Fev, if you're tuning in after your breakfast radio shift, of course. All right, there is vinyl and video, 2006 revisited. One year left in the kit bag. Which year is it? Well, you'll have to tune in next week to find out. But you don't have to tune in next week to hear us go mad. On Footyology, the rant off. All right, we uh, touched on this earlier in the show, Finey. We've got a rant all ready to go on a subject we've already talked about in our news segment. I alluded to it earlier. Let's find out what it is now. Count me in, please. One, two, do the do. I'm pissed off with AFLW, Finey. Who do these women think they are? Not only challenging gender stereotypes, but offering up some bloody good entertainment at the same time. I've watched just about everything this fifth AFLW season's bowled up, and my primary observation is this. 
that a score of dinosauric, misogynistic, mainly middle-aged men are watching their metaphorical penis size shrivel even further as the girls' game goes from strength to strength. They've also gone eerily quiet. You know the guys I'm talking about. They're the ones who spent most of the first couple of seasons of AFLW slaying it off on social media. Remember the catcalls? Why is AFLW being shoved down my throat? The skills are shocking. I'd rather watch paint dry. Why isn't this money being invested in grassroots footy? Those sledges didn't make sense even then, of course. No one was tying these guys to a chair, making them watch it. And of course, the skills weren't going to be comparable to a men's competition, which had been fully professional for 20 years and had 125 years of history and resources behind it. And the grassroots argument was the silliest of a lot, given we were talking about just on half the population now having the capacity to become active participants in the sport, not just passive spectators. How can that possibly be bad for the game at lower levels? But I haven't seen much of that at all on Twitter lately, which is significant. Have these insufferable fools finally stopped hate-watching? Hopefully. But if they haven't, they've sure as hell got a lot less ammunition with which to work. The facts are the rising standard of football from that first season, not all that long ago in 2017 to now, is phenomenal. I reckon it culminated in the best game of women's football yet played between Melbourne and North Melbourne last Saturday night. This was a ripping contest, Finey. It had all the hard clashes we've come to expect from the women's game, but also long kicking, swift ball movement and a rate of scoring which put plenty of men's games played over recent years to shame. Melbourne's six-goal second term was dazzling stuff, but the Roos were almost as good in their third-quarter comeback, and the final stages were close, hotly contested, real edgy-your-seat stuff. If you weren't watching, you really missed something. Everything this competition's advocates promised about standards improving rapidly with decent coaching and decent resources, not to mention readily identifiable pathways, is coming to fruition. And all those critics whose barbs were almost always being issued not in good faith, but in pathetic male insecurities, are starting to look even sillier. I can sympathise with these poor downtrodden men on one level, Finey. After all, we all harboured fantasies in our youth about being AFL stars, strutting our stuff in front of thousands of fans and getting to live out our dreams. Most of us realise quickly that we're not good enough to do so and are content to watch the best in the caper show us how it's done. But for those whose entire sense of masculinity is wrapped up in the ability to roost a torpedo 50 metres or take a hanger, it must have been a crushing blow, one which is exacerbated when they see the opposite sex also finally given the chance to live out their own dreams. They could, of course, revel in those opportunities now coming the way of the women in their own lives, their friends, their sisters, wives, daughters and girlfriends. It's a bit sad they've had to instead try to make themselves feel better by crapping all over those women instead. And now there's not even enough ammunition to do that with any conviction. I'm loving this season's AFLW finey, and I reckon plenty of my male brethren are as well. And those scared little men feeling even more threatened as the girls' game grows bigger? Beware, boys. You might soon have to start measuring the size of your todgers, not with a ruler, but a microscope. Yeah, I don't know whether I'd go as far as you do sometimes, Rowan, but I certainly agree with the sentiment. Great, great rant. All right. Three, two, one, rant. Now, I know we've both complained about holy moly in the last few weeks. And I was holding out some hope, some vain hope, 
that the Australian viewing public would send that rubbish back to where it belonged, which is no man's land of television, and have its run cut short. But no, that's not the case. Apparently, we can't get enough of watching people playing putt-putt combined with the sort of sadism that had little boys putting microscopes onto ants and setting them on fire. The commentators are the package, Shervo, and some American called Wriggle, whose smut unfortunately lets his timing down. I think he's a decent comedian, but the other night, and I've only watched a minute or so of this rubbish, he was talking about his father putting Lucille's balls or something like that anyhow. Nevertheless, this is a trend, a trend into infantile television, and God knows where it's coming from. We've already had Lego as a major TV program, now Putt-Putt, and apparently following Putt-Putt, Ultimate Tag. That's right, Tiggy is now going to make its way to the small screens in unmissable grabs and unmissable TV. You don't want to miss Tiggy on Australian television. I mean, who's coming up with these ideas? Awesome-o at a dollar a pop? And if it is awesome-o, how comes there's no Adam Sandler in any of them? Look, all of these programs are simply modern versions or versions with putter in hand of the old Almost Anything Goes, filmed at Channel 10 Studios on a rainy Sunday night with seven people watching. In fact, Almost Anything Goes, the genesis of half of the programs on TV, and New Faces is really the other half. I mean, what else is the voice? Australia has talent, question mark, question mark, question mark. The masked singer, the blind singer, or whatever that one where they turn the chairs around, the one-eyed singer, the nearsighted singer, they're all versions of New Faces. I'd rather have Frank Wilson of the club fame hosting, or Bert Newton of I like the boy fame. Sorry, Moonface, that's all I remember you for. I preferred Pot of Gold with Tommy Hanlon Jr. Grab your green card and Bernard King ripping flesh off wannabe young singers who he said would be better off singing in a choir of, say, 20,000 people. No, the modern versions are simply redos of the old made unbearable with backstories that are unbelievable and ad breaks that come every three minutes. Give me pot of gold over pot of shite any day. Oh, well said. Yeah, Not to mention the fact that those older versions produced stars who endured over generations, like, for example, Piffy, the bell. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, Piffy has become a cultural icon in this country. Thanks well, to Piffy his- did his heavy, didn't he? No, no, that was uh, Todd Todd Rickson who did oh, his sorry, hammy. Sorry. Don't, don't conflate the two. But again, they're all there on YouTube. In fact, this whole show has been a big two-hour YouTube promotion. Uh, speaking of promotion, Fonny, we're going to wrap things up, but a big promotion for our wonderful sponsors, please. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. There's your pot of gold at the end of the rainbow if you're looking for a great hamburger. It's Andrew's Hamburgers, absolutely delicious. No word describes them better. And no word better describes West Point properties and Nick Spartel's renovations and new builds other than spectacular. Spectacular West Point, 
delicious Andrew's hamburgers. There's two concise words. One on top of another, my friend. One on top of another. Woof, woof, woof. Bit of Uncle Doug Elliott. Spectacular plug. All right. Thanks for, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, please support us uh, both at the uh, supporter page wherever you hear this uh, podcast, thanks to ACAST, and at the Footyology website. Some great reading on there, as per usual. Uh, Ronnie Lerner having a look at uh, club by club, the emerging young guns who might take your side on to bigger and better things in 2021. So have a look at that and uh, follow the links to our Patreon page where you can become an official Footyology patron. All right, uh, jam-packed show this week. It was good fun. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, We'll see you again next week.